Welcome to Allied, the podcast for everything you need to know about web and video accessibility. I'm your host, Elisa Lewis, and I sit down with an accessibility expert each month to learn about their work. Every episode has a transcript published with it, which can be viewed by accessing the episode on the 3Play Media website. If you like what you hear on Allied, please subscribe or leave a review. Allied is brought to you by 3Play Media, your video accessibility partner. Visit us at www.3playmedia.com to learn why thousands of customers trust us to make their video and media accessible. Today we're joined by Josh Summers, Senior Manager, Training, Development and Technology at 3Play Media Canada, and Derek Throttle, Senior Director of Real-Time Services at 3Play Media. Josh trained as a live and offline closed captioner in 2003, working in the broadcast television industry. He helped implement and develop 3Play Media Canada's voice captioning department and managed its team for several years before moving into a multi-pronged customer-facing role with a focus on live and offline workflows, production efficiencies, and best practices. Derek entered the media accessibility industry in 2007 as a live closed captioner for news, sports, education, and corporate events. He now heads the live captioning department at 3Play Media Minneapolis, where he oversees workflows, meets with existing and prospective clients, and pushes industry advancement to provide high-quality captioning and language accessibility for live events. The pair have a great deal of experience in the live captioning space, and we're thrilled to have them both join us on Ally today to discuss the complexities of live captioning in the U.S. and Canada. Thank you so much, Josh and Derek, for joining me on Allied today. I'm really excited to have you both here. I want to get started just kind of getting to know you both, um, getting our audience a little bit familiar with who is on the episode today. So to kick us off, um, I'd love if you could both share something about yourselves that is not in your bio. Derek, do you want to kick us off? Uh, Sure. Yeah, I've got a a couple of things I usually go to, but I think the one for here I'll share is that um, I don't put in my bio because it's a technology company. It doesn't level the the coworkers we have here, but I have self-trained myself on programming. And so with my kids at home, I build apps for them. We play little simple HTML games. Um, and so it's something I like to do in my spare time. Awesome. Thank you. Josh, how about you? Yeah, I mean, call this interesting or not, but um, when I was a kid, my dad was in the US Navy. And so um, me and my sisters were Navy brats. And so we, we traveled the world um, somewhat. I've lived in Japan. Uh, I've lived in the States, obviously in the UK. That's where I'm from. Um, so yeah, I, I have been able to see a lot of the world, therefore, through uh, virtue of being a Navy brat. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so kind of moving on, continuing to get to know you, but shifting into a little bit more about our topic today and talking about live captioning. I'd love to learn how you both um, got into live captioning. Can you each summarize, um, you know, sort of the path that led you to live captioning from the beginning until 3Play 
Um, and then your current roles at three play media, including your respective locations. I, I, I can jump in there. Um, yeah. So I joined a captioning company in the UK in London in 2003. So getting on for 20 years now where I trained as a live and an offline captioner, that was my kind of intro into this industry. Um, Believe it or not, at that time, uh, captioners, live captioners used QWERTY keyboards to write live captions. This was kind of at the point that voice captioning was taking off as a, as a technology, as a production method. And then while I was there, I volunteered to join a pilot respeaking or voice captioning team. The company was just kind of feeling its way into that space. Um, joined another larger captioning company a couple of years later, uh, worked there for a few years, eventually moved into a freelance position. Um, I reached out to National Captioning Canada, now 3Play Media Canada, in around about 2015, and they um, invited me to move out to Canada in 2016 uh, with a remit to help them build out a new voice captioning department. Um, so I joined I joined the company as the uh, department of that manager. I, I was in that seat for about five years. And then a couple of years ago, moved into my current seat of um, senior manager of training and development. Um, so that's my current role at 3Play. Uh, my primary responsibility is for training and development of our production staff, live and offline captioners like most staff at 3Play Canada I wear different hats um, so I also work in the operations side of live and offline captioning um, technical support I look at production workflows um, you know looking for efficiencies in the ways that we use our software and of course um, now collaborating with friends in um, the two other locations at 3Play um, just kind of generally helping to integrate the Canadian operation into the wider organization. It's always so fun hearing Josh's story because our backgrounds are, are so well paralleled together. It's just funny coming from, from different backgrounds, coming together, meeting each other, and then telling our stories and, and how similar they are. So for me, with a lot of people at that time, probably similar experiences, didn't know closed captioning was actually a profession that people did until somebody in the industry actually told me about it. And so for me, it was actually a uh, college recruiter for a school in, in Des Moines, Iowa. And they told me about the program. They said that this is uh, closed captioning where people caption television and sports programs from home. And at the time, I was thinking that sounds amazing. Like, I'm going to be at home watching baseball games and everything anyway. So if I can get paid to do that, that sounds like the perfect job for me. And so I, I went to the school. I uh, initially started as a stenographer, which is very similar to what a lot of the court reporters use with a steno machine. A lot of the captioners do the same thing. Um, and I, I loved writing and feeling that just flow of hearing words and through my fingers, just creating that content. But as I was going through the program, uh, they introduced a voice captioning pilot program similar to what Josh had done as well. And so my passion for just technology in general had me pursue that. And so I graduated with a closed captioning degree specializing in speech recognition. And then I spent the next eight years fulfilling that fantasy of working as a remote captioner, 
um, with a company where I got exposed to all different really cool broadcasts. I, I became a fan of the Tour de France. I watched the sport of MMA evolve. I got a daily dose of business news and Los Angeles local news, even though um, I was living in, in different parts of the country. Um, I was able to take my job from Iowa to Florida, and then I moved from Florida back to Minnesota. And it was when I got back to Minnesota that I connected with a company called CaptionMax. And so in 2015, uh, I joined, and my responsibility at that time was to build out a real-time captioner training program and grow the team of employees on site in our Minneapolis office. Over time, my role evolved, uh, began supporting the broader needs of our live captioning department as the director. And then in February of 2022, so a year ago now, uh, 3Play Media was, uh, they acquired CaptionMax. And so my role since then has remained relatively the same, but with some fresh new faces, exciting new technologies that we can work with, um, and excited to see where we can take this next with uh, the evolving of the industry. Great. Thank you both. Um, Derek, like you mentioned, your paths really are quite parallel. Um, both have so much experience in this space. Um, you know, so so with that, with that deep experience that you both bring to the table um, in live captioning, particularly for broadcast TV, I, I think live captioning can feel a bit abstract to many people. Um, and it's really quite sophisticated from a production side. Can you tell us about some of the unique factors that come into play in live captioning for broadcast TV? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would I would say on that is that live captioning of all content types is, is challenging for similar reasons. Um, when I think about broadcast captioning, I think about, I mean, particularly the work that we do at 3Play Canada, you know, I think about live news broadcasts and sports broadcasts, you know, as well as um, live performances in the arts and music and film events and things of that, of that nature. Fundamentally, Broadcast television is can be difficult to prepare for. That's one of the, the kind of biggest challenges for our teams. Shows in the live space are being compiled right up until broadcast time. So it's not always clear um, what the content is going to be that the captioner has to caption. And, you know, obviously the, the role of the captioner is to accurately transcribe the dialogue, including spellings, for example, of people's names and organization names and things like that. And a lot of the time, the resources that we have at our disposal to prepare for live broadcasts are thin on the ground or missing altogether. And we're using resources that anybody, you know, any member of the public could could pull from for themselves. Um, so caption is having a, a really solid understanding of global and national and local current affairs. And even, you know, the history behind current affairs can be super important. Um, you know, I think about uh, components like the decoupling of audio and video, which is, you know, not to get kind of too deep into the technical side here, uh, typically, our captions are listening um, to live, what I'd call live, live audio. The video is on a, on a delay, at least on the kind of audience side. So the captioner is relying on audio only a lot of the time to identify different speakers. Um, and in broadcast programming, particularly news and sports, there can be multiple speakers that you're listening to and trying to identify just by sound. Um, and often each with their own kind of specific requirement um, for the way that the identifiers are formatted. Um, 
there are commercial breaks. That's obviously a feature of broadcast programming, um, which may at first glance look like an opportunity to, you know, rest. And, and that's true. Um, resting the voice and the brain in periods is important, but typically they're kind of research windows so that we can, the captioner can start to think about the programming that is about to air after the commercial break. And so they're, you know, they're looking up the spellings of people's names. Um, you know, you have things like house style to think about, which, you know, the way that the captions are supposed to look, uh, the way that the caption, the, the, excuse me, the customer wants them to be formatted, and that can vary between customers. You've got things like crosstalk, which is typically less um, prevalent than it is in virtual meeting, uh, virtual platform meetings. Um, so if you think about like breakfast news, for instance, where you have a number of speakers kind of talking over each other. Um, and then you have caption placement as well. So being mindful of graphical information that's being used on the screen and ensuring that your captions aren't obscuring any important um, on-screen information. And that can be graphics, it could be people's lips, it could be other kind of significant um, action. Yeah, I think Josh is really touching on here, like live captioning is hard. I mean, when you're trying yeah. to caption at speed of somebody talking, there's so much that goes into it. And so the captioner has to be really attentive to details, the formatting, make sure that they're still connected to those encoders, that they're mindful of the audio. Sometimes audio changes. We have to change the source of our audio. Um, and so it's just all about trying to maintain accuracy at speed and not getting caught up on an error. It's, it's easy for an early captioner to see a mistake and just gravitate toward that and almost get so hyper-focused that they lose the train of thought for all the stuff that keeps coming. And with live captioning, it doesn't pause for you. It just keeps on going. And so one of the things that I, I tend to put into like our job postings is seeking somebody that's simultaneous multitasking as a skill of theirs, which sounds very much like a job posting buzzword. But when I think about live captioning, you really have to be able to simultaneously multitask. That's listening to the audio. That's writing with your fingers, either a stenography or keyboarding, um, speaking if you're a voice captioner, note-taking, reading your transcript, reading messages from the coordinators, watching your captions, make sure that they're still working. All of these things are happening simultaneously. And you know that just takes the right person, the right mindset to be able to do that. I think that's a really interesting point that you touch on. Um, you know, it's not just being able to have multiple tabs open on a computer and completing mul multiple tasks. It's really like in action in the moment. How can you execute um, and and function so quickly and and um, you know, kind of taking in multiple things and and putting them back out there. Um, but I also think that you touched on a really interesting point, um, of being able to just move on, um, just being able to keep going. Um, it doesn't stop. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more, um, you know, I guess backtracking for a second, I think a lot of people when, when they're viewing live captions and maybe they don't understand, um, the process behind it, you know, obviously lag and, and delays are something that people comment on quite frequently and, and are imp an important consideration of live captioning. Um, but to help our audience kind of better understand that, I'm wondering if you can touch on the different types of live captioning methods a bit. You know, I know you mentioned Steno earlier on. Um, that's kind of, you know, how, how you, you know, what you did earlier on in your career. Um, but can you talk a little bit about Steno and voice captioners um, and kind of the differences and, and benefits um, or advantages of each? 
Yeah, so the different steno or the different styles of captioning really come into how the input is. And so for the stenographers, they're using a steno machine. They're using shorthand where they create briefs to write the word, usually by phonetics, or they'll do uh, entries that'll create an entire phrase with a single combination press of their machine. Uh, it's very kind of similar to like uh, playing an instrument like a piano. I've never played a piano, but I felt like it as I was doing some of the, the stenography early on in my career. Um, other ways are like voice recognition where they will re-speak what they're hearing into a speech to text engine and they will do things to control the accuracy. So it's not the same as talking into your cell phone and having um, Alexa or Siri give you the text in like a text message, but they're actually saying different words to control the homonyms. They will use, uh, we call them trigger words to trigger the, the different spellings of things that may not sound anything like what I said, but because I said it in that way, I know it's gonna be reliable and give me the text that I wanna create for the captions. And so again, there is ways to control it. It is different than just regular um, like audio to text that you might see on software, but they have a, a way to manipulate it. And then there's ways to have keyboarding where you hand type it or do shortcuts with a typical QWERTY keyboard, like, like Josh mentioned um, his experience early on. And there's ways to take an automated captioning solution and then edit as it's creating the auto text. So there's a lot of different inputs and I think um, they all have different values to them. You know, so a voice captioner has access to their hands where they can research terms as it's happening. Steno is much more deliberate in the key presses and what they may create. So it's just a matter of, uh, you know, the theory that creates the, the content at speed for them and what they've learned. Mm -hmm. And I, I definitely wouldn't recommend live qwerty keyboarding as a as a production method i don't i don't imagine there are too many if any providers that are that are doing that anymore um very difficult to write quickly enough to be able to keep pace with most speakers uh, which is one of the reasons why when when i first started doing this on a qwerty keyboard we worked in tandem so you had you had two people kind of trading sentences off of each other um and then, yeah, just on the on the steno voice um, point, um, and this may be simplifying things a little bit with a, with a steno machine and the theory that you're using, you press a combination of keys and you can expect to get the same result each time. Whereas with voice recognition technology, there is always um, that kind of element of um, unexpected text generation, which as Derek said, you know, we, we can do a lot to kind of mitigate, but the, the results can be a little bit more variable. And I think Elisa to kind of touch back on your question about latency. One of the things there is live captioning naturally inherently is going to have a delay because we can't write the words until we hear it. And if it's truly live, we have no idea what's going to be said. And so because of that, and then because of the transmission of that text, there's going to be somewhere between, uh, you could call it four seconds to seven seconds or like a window there, which is elastic because at times we will write a phrase and catch up quickly other times we're going to sit back to understand what is the proper homonym or what is the, the direction that the speaker is going. And so there's always a delay there. But when you start to experience delays that are 20 seconds of lag or 30 seconds delayed, those are always a technical related issue. Um, it could be that the audio the captioner is listening to is maybe 15 seconds delayed itself. Captioner doesn't know that because they don't know what 
true zero means. Um, they're just going off of the audio they hear, which seems to them instant. But if they're hearing something that does have a buffer to it, that's only going to add 15 seconds to the five that they're writing. So there's always a delay, but it should only be within maybe five seconds. What is typical, if there even is typical, um, what does that look like, the communication between live captioners and kind of the event producers in some of these really big, high-profile events? Do they typically have um, a lot of preparation and information up front? Um, Is that not typical? Do you have any idea of kind of what these best practices um, is for that? Yeah. And so from an accessibility stance, the ideal situation would be that the event would be recorded and all the accessibility services would be added in a way that allows them to edit and review for accuracy and make it perfect. But there's a lot of excitement and urgency with live events. That's that's not possible. And so there is this collaboration with the stations and the broadcasters of giving us awareness so we can prepare as best as possible. So it could be a verbatim script. It could just be a rundown of what's going to happen, or it could just be a list of who's going to be appearing. And we can make our own inferences from there of what they might be performing or what they might say or or those kind of things. But it's really about what the station and the broadcasters are willing to collaborate with and what they're willing to expose. Uh, We're in a world where there's a lot of uh, communication and there's worries about leaks and trying to get um, as much stuff revealed in the proper timing and the proper moment and not to get it out to the internet early. And so for those reasons, we often don't know anything more than what somebody online would know just from looking at the websites and social media. And so we'll use as much as we can predict. Um, but ideally, what would happen is, and this does happen with a lot of um, you know these high profile events, is we'll join for the rehearsal so we can kind of hear in and get a kind of a test run for our captions to see what works, what doesn't work, and start to prepare some of our own rough scripts. Um, or again, they'll provide us some content in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's just to kind of tack on to that, it's illustrative of perhaps what can go wrong, what can happen if a broadcaster or a network cannot or is unwilling to provide a level of prep material that you know helps caption providers to kind of mitigate these sorts of issues. And something else we're looking at now is when we do know that there's going to be a combination of languages. So if we know there's going to be a Spanish performance, for example, or if it's high likelihood that there could be some acceptance speeches in other languages, we will actually book multiple captioners. We can do an English captioner and a Spanish captioners, and they'll share the connection. And when I say they share the connection, they're both connected to where the data is being embedded into the stream. And then at the appropriate moments, the captioner will take over and actually write for their portion. So during the performance, the Spanish captioner can take over and start to caption those lyrics in full. And then as the performance finishes and they go back to the English portion of the event, the English captioner retakes control and they then insert their captions. It's more difficult logistically. Um, There's a lot more planning involved. You have to have some foresight that you're going to need other languages and what those languages would be. But as we evolve with the industry um, and languages are become more globalized, this is something that we're exploring and that um, we're working with some broadcasters to solve. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of great information that you both shared. Um, Josh, I think you made a particularly interesting point that, um, you know, as you both have talked about, 
the live captioners are kind of using this experience um, as a learning opportunity to, to think like, okay, what can we, how can we change our processes and um, be more prepared, prepared for something like this in the future. Um, but it's also important for the broadcasters, the event producers to think about from their end, um, you know, is there a way to get more information to the captioners ahead of time? Are there different things that they can do um, or, t- or pieces of information that can be provided to kind of help alleviate some of these, um, you know, challenges that are, are inevitable? I'm curious, you know, because I I think it does give some really great insight into the, um, you know, process of live captioning. There's another controversy um, that erupted late last year over an Elton John concert on Disney Plus, um, where the captions displayed the words Donald Trump at a few points in the live stream. Um, You know, this was later reported to have been a technical glitch, um, but during the events, one tweet joked that someone would be fired for it. Um, Can either of you touch on how something like this might happen and what kind of technical um, components would play into it? It's it's difficult to say, obviously, without having the kind of context behind the production method, but certainly from the couple of reports or articles that I've read, it looked as though there was perhaps a hybrid AI caption and human captioner or editor system that was deployed for the event, which is unusual. Um, it's not a kind of you know prevalent production method in in our space. I can see it being a challenging production method, but I mean, if if this were this were the case, then um, there may have been AI captions that were generated to kind of create a a base transcript that a human editor was monitoring and then fixing, correcting errors that the AI made in real time. So one thought is maybe that the editor simply failed to catch the words Donald Trump um, in time, uh, assuming that there's, you know, a kind of limited buffer time that was, was there for editing. Um, or maybe there was a a trigger, like a keyboard shortcut that um, the words Donald Trump had been assigned to that the editor was kind of punching out and the editor didn't didn't realize. So either AI or human or both potentially. Yeah, and we see that uh, occasionally with live captioning because you are trying to create ways to reuse different um, shortcut commands, trigger words if you're a voice captioner or keyboard strokes or steno strokes. Um, they have a, a technique they call briefs in steno. And for voice writing, we call them triggers where you write something or you say something a, a specific way that by itself means nothing. But depending on your dictionary entry and what you have that correlated to, you can then turn it into something that's utilized for that program. That's how we build out rosters. It's how we build out special words. So they could have had DT as Derek Throdall, Donald Trump, dog trainer. They could reuse that same combination a number of times. And I don't know what they intended to write here, but it could have been, again, a DT phrase that their DT they thought was going to come out as something. And instead it came out in this program as Donald Trump. Um, We saw this and it's really interesting how sometimes it can be really offensive or it can spark a lot of controversy, even when the word or phrase itself is not independently controversial, 
but in the context it's used, it really can be. And so one that always comes to mind for me is it was around the controversies with Colin Kaepernick, where there was you know, a lot of tension around whether or not athletes should be taking a kneel during the national anthem, or they should be standing, or some actually went to the locker room. And that year during the MLB All-Star game, there was a national anthem. It was broadcasted on TV. Everybody's watching it. It's a big event. And at the end of the song, those who know the national anthem, of course, or the land of the free and the home of the brave, well, free was written as the word knee. And so it came out as, or the land of the knee. And contextually, in the time of the, the controversies with kneeling to the national anthem, to have the word knee come out instead of free during the national anthem blew up on social media thinking that this was intentionally done. And the only person who knows that that was intentional is the captioner, but I give them the benefit of the doubt because it's such a simple error to make with a steno machine. It is a slight misposition of the right or the left index finger to change the F to an R um, and, it, and the, the entire word changed from free to knee. And with voice writing, those words sound very similar. So as Josh mentioned, you might say it accurately, but if the speech engine with its algorithm chooses a different likely word, suddenly it's going to give you something different than what you intended. And so again, I give the benefit of the doubt to the captioner there, but that didn't lessen the controversy anymore. And it went out and became a controversy, even though the word knee by itself would never be a word I would censor because it's by itself not controversial. Yeah. And again, it, it speaks to the complexity of the live captioning job, this multitasking that we've been talking about. I, again, like Derek, I would be reluctant to, you know, to point at anything in particular. I'd certainly be reluctant to criticize a captioner because captioners are doing so many different things at the same time that it can be difficult to spot and rectify every mistake. Um, and if you are leveraging ASR in a workflow, it's even more difficult, uh, depending on, you know, depending on the production method anyway. So they described it as a technical glitch. I think it probably wasn't a technical glitch, but more of an unintentional technical result just based on how everything was layered together. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think, again, you know, people commenting on, on these things may not understand all that goes into it um, and, and just how easy um, it is to have something like that um, happen, um, without really the, it, any, um, you know, an intention behind it at all. Um, I think, you know, most of these instances where captions or sort of caption issues go viral, um, or gain a lot of social media attention actually have, um, a positive effect on at least the, uh, visibility of accessibility services, um, you know, I think some of these scenarios end up in, in more laughs than anger. Um, but certainly the, you know, the trend of, of calling for the firing of a captioner anytime that there's a transcription snafu is, is concerning. Um, are these controversies or, you know, the conversations happening around it changing the way that live captioners operate? And um, like, what are the, what are the takeaways here? How do we kind of move through this going forward? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Derek. Yeah, I think it's a reminder that people are paying attention. So captioners take a lot of pride in their in their work. I mean, they they want to do a good job. 
And it's rewarding to see people passionate about the quality of those captions. It's, it's what promotes good quality captions. And the fact that there is an outcry for things to be accurate is wonderful because it's going to provide the influence that broadcasters need to make sure that they're also doing their due diligence to do things like provide prep to the captioners and to be collaborative to make sure the captioners can write as accurately as possible. Um, but it can also be disheartening when one mistake gets all the attention, even after you do such a good job. Um, it's usually that one moment where you messed up that ends up getting the spotlight. Yeah, and captioning bloopers have existed for as long as voice captioning has existed. And those, it's those more significant snafus that are always at the back of the captioner's mind, I think. And developments in the software that captioners use, um, you know, have progressed and have allowed captioners to handle the limitations of speech recognition software in many more ways that that leads to a more accurate end product. Um, and I think the captioners are acutely aware of the limitations of speech recognition software. They know how to mitigate against the vast majority of those errors. Um, you know, the errors that they can mitigate and those that are just out of their out of their hands. I think it's really critical for viewers to understand the nuance involved with live captioning. Um, and as, as and as we wrap up our conversation, I'd love to close with each of you um, touching on a couple of pieces of advice for our audience. So as kind of a prompt, um, what advice would you give broadcasters and networks who are live captioning their televised events? I think that most broadcasters already understand the challenges of live captioning and, and how to support providers. Um, there is regulation in, in place that compels broadcasters to provide live captioning. Broadcasters that are in, you know entirely new to the live captioning space, though, should vet providers when they're looking for a caption provider. Um, they should learn the requirements. They should understand the closed captioning regulation that exists in their geography. They should ask, I think, to see examples of work. You know, they can inquire around you know, things like internal training and quality assurance standards and talk about the provider's ability to support the customer. Um, and yeah, I mean, as we've been saying, prep materials, um, understanding that the more prep you know, show rundown scripts that they can provide, the better the, the quality of the captions ultimately. Yeah, Josh mentioned a really good point here where a lot of the broadcasters in the traditional space, they're familiar with best practices and, you know, what the captioning companies need to do a good job. But the industry is shifting and we're doing a lot of work that's not necessarily broadcast anymore. We're doing things that are corporate events and online sessions and webcasts and, and all the different kinds of things. And so we do get a lot more people coming to us without that background of understanding what the best practices are. And, you know, the, the key things we tell them is schedule with as much notice as possible, allow us to be able to get the resources lined up to, to prep as best we can and, and to make sure that the event is going to be successful do a test of the connections, make sure that everything is set up to go because the events are going to go with or without the captioning, right? This is live broadcast, live events. The, the timing is so critical to live, live events. And so 
making sure that everything is working in advance is part of those best practices. And then absolutely, whatever they can provide for either direct script material or even just awareness about what the event is going to be, who's going to be speaking, um, some of the content, just even broadly speaking, will help the captioner get in the right mindset to do a good job. Thank you. I, I think that's really great way to wrap this up with some really actionable um, kind of pieces of advice. Um, you know, when we're dealing with technology, there's al- always a possibility of things going wrong, but um, preparing as best as you can, practicing, making sure that, you know, you're setting things up um, for as much success as possible is, is really great advice. Um, thank you both so much for sharing your insight into, you know, how some of these issues um, happen and kind of the complexities that come along with live captioning, as well as how you can really prepare and um, have the most successful live captioning possible. So thank you so much for joining us on Allied. And it's been really great chatting with you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Allied. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest on accessibility, visit www.3playmedia.com backslash allied podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.